Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible. It shows the transition is possible. Thank you, Kurt. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Missions show, listeners, and salut, Babette. Now, I've got Kurt with me today because Andy's working, and Kurt has stepped in to do the panel, and but he's also preparing a show quite for, I think, the next two weeks. So how are you going, Kurt? And tell mm. us about the Latrobe Valley that you've been working on. Very well, Viv, and hello to everybody out there. So I, I've been working on one in the lead-up to the uh, Victorian state election, which is in two, 2014. 4th of November, the show that it will be on the 12th. Um, it's really going, it's, it's a very exciting election and it's it's looking at the Morewell electorate uh, as, as figuring in such uh, the cornerstone for climate change policy um, and looking at all these independents have emerged um, oh. that have various different takes on on, on um, it does coal have a future if it does have a future how long and then other ones that are very very passionate about renewables so we'll be taking a bit of a political survey around the more well electric. Fantastic and listeners in the holiday programs listen to Kurt's show he's going to put them all together in a series all the episodes in his work he's been doing done in La Trobe Valley well tonight's show is called Thinking Big I think you all know if you listen to this program regularly that I like big projects. I can't bear just a few turbines here and a few solar panels there. I want the big uh, projects that are going to make us 100% renewables. We'll hear about how Tasmania is going to be the battery of the nation at about 5.30. I've got Steve Davey from Taz Hydro and Ben White from Marinus Link and they spoke to me at the AFR Energy Summit. They plan to generate wind and solar power which is stored using pumped hydro and then sent via an undersea cable to Victoria. I think there's a big undersea cable that's equal to six. You'll listen to what they say. It's, it's, it's massive. And they were, we're lucky to have top journalist Giles Parkinson also with us to talk about the number of pumped hydro projects being planned around Australia and how they compare to gas or big battery style firming of renewable energy. This term firming, I hope you're getting used to it. It's just m- m- smoothing out the difference between the wind and solar energy <coughs> that uh, coal and gas used to do. Giles has always said that the transition is inevitable and I think he is largely responsible for educating the people who want to know how manageable it all is. But first we're going to the Pilbara where a company called CWP are planning a project that we will be proud of. They are not talking megawatts. They can generate 11 gigawatts of wind and solar energy and send it undersea by cables to Jakarta and Singapore. I love this idea because, as the IPCC told us, we need to not only retire our coal-fired power stations around the world, but to phase out exports of fossil fuels too. And how thrilling would it be to export clean power instead of coal? So I would like to welcome Andrew Dixon and the Asian Renewable Energy Hub. And how are you, Andrew? 
Good afternoon. Very well and nice to be with you. Yes. Look, I met you at a conference where you were talking about the social licence for these big projects. And um, it's on the Pilbara Coast, somewhere south of Broome. And uh, you told the conference about getting uh, the agreement with traditional owners who are called the Nyangumata people. Nyangumata. And it didn't sound rushed or, you know, pushy. And you explained how the benefits will definitely flow to those local people over several generations, as well as to Java and to Singapore, whose emissions can fall as a result. So all of the, ticking all the boxes for me. So welcome, Andrew. Could you really start by describing the place where this thing will be built and how it will change once your project is built? Sure. So our site is located in the Pilbara, the East Pilbara, between Broome and Port Hedland. Um, it, it's inland from a, a place called 80 Mile Beach. It's a very, very big site. It's, um, it's about 7,000 square kilometres big. Uh, the site starts about 40 kilometres inland and extends about another 70 kilometres inland. So again, it's, it's of epic scale. Um, we, uh, our current configuration has 11 gigawatts of generation. Uh, which will consist of two-thirds wind and one-third solar generation. So over 1,400 um, very, very large turbines and several gigawatts of PV as well. But does that mean you have to clear the land, like clear away a lot of forest there? No, not at all. So um, firstly, it's, it's a fairly dry environment there. Um, so, but we use a surprisingly little of the land. So of the site that we're developing, we, we will ultimately use just over 2% of the land. So obviously, the, you know, we, we would need to clear some land for, for roads and for hard stands and turbine foundations. Um, but most of that uh, gets revegetated once construction's over. So, yeah, we have a very light footprint on the land, certainly compared to, you know, equivalent developments in sort of the mining and resources sectors. Okay, I'm interested in these conversations you had with the local people. How how will they benefit? Oh, they'll benefit enormously. So I've just, I've just come from a meeting last week, actually, with the Nungamata people. Um, we've been meeting with them and building a relationship with them for over three years, um, really sort of from the, from the glint in the eye phase through to the development of the project. So this is a, a pretty new thing, really, up in northern Australia, projects of this scale, um, and really very different from a mining and resources project um, because, again, we use a very small footprint of the land. Um, we don't take away the resource like a, like a mine does. Uh, at the end of our project, you know, over 50 years, the wind and the sun resource are there exactly as they were at the start. Mm. Uh, obviously, it's non-polluting, it's a very light touch, and it provides, you know, income across multiple generations. Um, you mentioned at the start that, you know, we're planning to export power to Indonesia and Singapore. Um, so the life of that cable is over 50 years. So, again, the life of our project would be, you know, at least that long whilst the cable is still working. So, yeah, over, over at least 50 years, the Nungimata people will receive um, you know, direct financial benefits uh, and we will assist them to put in place you know, really good governance arrangements so that they can invest wisely, manage it carefully and upskill uh, and have you know, self-determination long term. Mm. What are some of the jobs that might be available up there? Oh, many. So, I mean, we during construction we would have over three thousand people working on the on the construction project for uh, six to seven years. 
So we actually took the Nungamata directors to a to the Colgar wind farm near Perth last week um, to show them firstly what a wind farm looks like, um, but also you know, meeting the technicians to understand the sort of jobs in maintaining a project um, that don't you know that that are achievable for the Nungamata people to start off at an entry level and then upskill through you know through training programs over time. So that's that's if they want to pick up a spanner or a multimeter technical jobs, but I mean there'll be lots of other jobs as well that are non-technical uh, in terms of you know accommodation services, you know servicing three thousand people for that long. Oh yes, that's right. Um, yeah, I mean I mean tourism opportunities. We'll be building a visitor centre, a cultural centre, oh, no. um, and then yeah, all sorts of opportunities will arise, and that's the, that's the process we're in now to understand. Look, this, this is fantastic opportunity. How would you like to embrace this to, to benefit your community long term? Mm. Well, this program's called Thinking Big, and I especially liked it when I heard you speak at the conference about taking it slowly, doing it correctly, you know, talking to yeah. everybody. I really appreciated that because I think this is mega, isn't it? Now you say th- 3,000 workers, that's a lot of yeah. uh, supplies needed for them and housing and yeah. all the rest. So um, I think you do have to have an absolutely methodical way of doing things and a calm, calm spirit. Yeah, I mean, social license is, is is key in developing projects of this nature. We've been doing this for many decades. We understand the importance of that. And, it, you know, it sort of fully bakes our project, too. It resolves issues and makes sure we're developing in the right way at the right location. So we've we've been developing the project for four, for four years. We started thinking about it in 2014. And then, you know, really early on when we settled on that preferred site, uh, again, we met with the traditional owners, we met with the local community, and a whole range of stakeholders to to start engaging and start going on the journey together. Mm-hmm. So again, it's a very long term project where uh, we we would expect to have a, uh, environmental and a planning approvals next year, probably late next year. But then there's still several years to go before we reach financial investment decision. Mm-hmm. So it gives plenty of time to to reach really mature agreements with traditional owners and with. Yeah, the wide variety of stakeholders well, uh, who we need to consult with. Yeah, I think we need to tell listeners that it's sort of in two parts, that you'll be supplying energy within Western Australia at first, mm. and then you'll be having um, supply to Indonesia and Singapore. And have tell us about the, their feeling about Indonesia and Singapore. What, are they um, contracted already? Are they c- very keen to have this? I mean, it would have so, a big impact so on their renewable, you know, like their emissions, wouldn't it? Yeah, so I guess one of the from from an Indonesian perspective, um, obviously their economy is growing quickly. Um, they have aspirations around you know, renewables and reducing emissions, but the ability to develop renewable projects in Indonesia is much more constrained compared to in Australia. Um, obviously, the, the solar resource is not as good. Um, the landforms are more challenging. It's, it's, just, it's much more complicated to do things at scale. So that's really where our project vision began, thinking, look, in, in Australia we've got world-class solar resource. Um, we have also a very good wind resource in, in the right areas, uh, and we've got plenty of space. So how can we harness the generation potential in one country to feed you know, the energy aspirations of another country using subsea cables? So it really began there, but our, our thinking has expanded a lot, over, particularly over the last 12 months. And we see enormous potential for consumption of energy in Australia as well to power mines and mineral processing in towns, but increasingly to, to power 
um, a green hydrogen production that can be used both domestically and exported for export revenue. Oh well, I think that's a subject for another another whole uh, talk. But uh, green hydrogen, just put it out there, listeners. I think the tech show does quite a bit about that sort of thing. So we'll come back to you at another time about that. But that's obviously a, a very progressive sort of thing. But listen, I read that you your output would equal the total Australian renewable energy target output for 2020. And I wonder how you're going to firm up all that capacity. So it's actually greater than the RET now. So the, the RET target is 33 terawatt hours per year. Our latest layout actually is 40 terawatt hours per year. So yeah, really large volumes of energy. Mm. Um, considering the export say to Jakarta, um, we don't necessarily need to firm it up. So what we need to control is ramp rates. So we don't need to go from sort of full generation to zero generation sort of instantaneously. That would create downstream problems. The main thing is controlling the, the, the speed of, of change in the, in the ramp rate of energy, both up and down, um, but also to have forecasting so that uh, the, the, our variable source of generation can be firmed by other generation sources. Um, within the Pilbara, there's a lot of pumped hydro potential in the western Pilbara. Um, and so, yeah, we, I think we would have a combination of technologies depending on um, how we would integrate with existing generators, including gas generators, in the Pilbara. Mm. So, yeah, there's, there's still a lot of work to do. But, um, yeah, we, our, our, a key factor with our site is that we're combining wind and solar at a very large scale. Generation is relatively cheap these days, so we can actually overbuild generation for the transmission capacity we're planning. So we actually have a, a capacity factor delivered of about 70%. A typical wind farm is usually 40 to 45%. A solar farm is 25 to 30 But our combined um, capacity factor is around 70%. Mm-hmm. So that, that reduces the challenge for, for firming. Okay. Well, look, I feel uncomfortable just saying, wow, this is big, this is world, you know, world class. It's obviously... Obviously, you're leading the way, I think. I don't think there's anything else in the world like this. But when climate change is front of mind, as it is for for most responsible citizens, I think, nowadays, I can see that the exported energy would reduce emissions in Asia, but also with the moratorium lifted on fracking gas in Northern Territory, you could easily be supplying Northern Territory with the wherewithal to, um, you know, dig up a lot more gas and oil and promote more fossil fuel exploitation. Is that on the cards for you? So, no, we're, we're planning to, to keep the keep the non-exported energy in the Pilbara. So there's obviously there are very large mines and mineral processes there now who rely on particularly uh, gas and diesel generation. So we would be displacing you know, significant volumes of fossil fuel generation. Um, but also creating you know, whole new industries, whole new products, particularly green hydrogen and ammonia that can be used domestically. It could be incorporated into existing gas networks to, to, to basically clean up uh, existing gas networks. Uh, it can be um, used to replace um, brown ammonia in all sorts of applications, including fertilisers. So again, there's all sorts of applications for these products. But they're all based upon large volumes of, of clean renewable energy converted, either used as green electrons or converted into a chemical form that can be used in multiple ways. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else worldwide that's like this? Uh, there is. One of our partners, Intercontinental Energy, is developing another project of this nature elsewhere in the world. It's not yet public, 
Um, there was a proposal called Desertec a number of years ago. Yes, I remember that. Sim- yeah, I'm hearing about aim. it or seeing maps and so on. Yeah. Yeah. So again, they they aim to generate at a large scale in Northern Africa, and particularly to export across to Europe. Um, but a complication in Northern Africa is sovereign risk, you know, sort of geopolitical risk in some of those countries. So it's actually non-trivial investing at you know, multi-billion dollar scale mm. in mm. areas of risk. So it's a totally different proposition in the Pilbara. There are many projects with significant you know, foreign direct investment into them uh, with long-term offtake agreements. It's very stable. People trust it. Uh, and we believe that you know, we can finance this very large project, both from Australian and international investors. Mm. Well, thank you very much, Andrew, for talking to us. I think you've got that sort of considered tone in your voice that I, I think it must soothe people who are who panic about the huge finance, the huge scale, the possible possible risks um it's it's very convincing to hear you speak and um, i wish you well with that project it's it's definitely a, a big benefit to the renewable energy world thank you it's asianrehub.com if people want to learn more oh let's just say that again uh Hub. Dot com for Asian Renewable Energy Hub. Okay, so yeah. people can see pictures and things as it develops. Thank you very much, Andrew. Good on you. Thank that, you. That was Andrew Dixon from CWP, uh, which is a innocuous sort of name, isn't it? But they're doing a mega project in the Pilbara. So after the little break, we'll talk to Giles Parkinson. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Thank you, Kurt. Welcome, Giles. Are you there? I'll just wait till John. Hello, how are you? Hi, good. Um, uh, before we start, I'd like to just talk about the Wentworth by-election because you wrote something about it today and I was up there just last week and I went to the climate forums and it really was front of mind for everyone. Climate change was the top issue and um, refugees. What, what message do you think we can draw from an independent doctor winning the Wentworth by-election? Well, look, interestingly enough, it's actually the second independent doctor that's put uh, climate change at the top of their agenda that's won a by-election in the last month or five weeks. If we go back to mid-September, there was a New South Wales state by-election for the city of Wagga Wagga, which had been a Liberal Party hand since the 1950s, and they lost that to an independent, um, Joe McGurr, um, who's also a former doctor, and... Um, 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 just sort of made a big campaign on, on the need for a push for renewables and climate change. He got elected, and so too, as we all know, um, Karen Phelps, um, who stood as an independent in Wentworth, um, doctor, uh, put climate change at the top of the agenda, and is elected and broke, basically. Um, first time ever that uh, the Liberals have lost that seat. Now, there's obviously a lot of things went into the... Um, 
into the Wentworth by-election. I think there was visceral anger at the fact that their local member oh, yes. dumped as yeah. Prime Minister. Yeah. Um, lots of things. But look, the fact that um, you've got two independents coming in, putting climate change quite high, it was, it was rated by the electors, the voters themselves, as a very important part. So that gives you hope that climate change can once again become a, an important part of the discussion in the lead-up to the next election. Um, which then inspires you to hope that um, the, major, the the big parties, at least Labor and the Greens, will continue their progress towards forming some credible and, and, and ambitious um, policy. And they're looking not so, so bad at the moment. Maybe they can go even, um, at least in the case of Labor, can go even harder. Um, I don't hold that much hope for the, um, the current government. What's, what's clear even before, during and after this latest by-election is that really they're very, they, they, they've got an internal water fight mm. between the small little liberals and the hard right. It's probably the best they go and do that in opposition mm. and tear it one apart over the issue and, 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 and see if they come back with something you know half sensible um, at the next election. I mean, I actually doubt that. Uh, because I think the hard right will, will continue to be there and will be supported by mainstream media, uh, the Murdoch media in particular, and the Sky News, and the radio talkbacks. And, yeah. um, well, this is, know, the, this is the problem for me. It's the media because even today, Monday after, you know, just the focus was not really where it should have been. I, I was observing it when I was up there and the two top issues were definitely refugees and reducing emissions. And I thought there was some, there was a kind of parallel thing about those two issues. The, the government has ignored the advice of the doctors who want to bring urgently, you know, sick children to Australia and their families from Nauru. They've ignored that doctor's advice and they've also ignored the advice of the world's best scientists to take urgent action. So it's that tin ear that they have got around taking advice from educated people and the main media not really educating people. And that's why I think maybe a lot of the Wentworth people were reading Your Renew Economy. But uh, I don't think they're listening to this show, but I think they were all primed up. They they had their facts right, you know. (laughs) Yeah, well, I do know there was one person um, in in Wentworth reading a new economy, but he's no longer Prime Minister. So uh, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, look, now let's talk about pumped hydro, you know, just to get back to the, the, the show is called Thinking Big. So pumped hydro, you've written a lot about it lately. And apparently as we retire the old coal-fired power, we're going to need something like 17,000 megawatts of storage. I heard that from Steve Davey and Taz Hydro, and he said that. And I, I don't think it can all be done with those big Tesla batteries. So tell us about Kidston in Queensland. Look, this is pretty exciting. So this is an old gold mine in the north of Queensland. Um, it's, um, it's owned by a company called GenX, who are proposing, they've already built a 50 megawatt solar farm there. What they're proposing to do is to build another 270 megawatt megawatt solar farm, which is pretty big, um, but they're also prof- proposing to use the pit and the, and the, and the huge difference, or well, two pits in the, gold, in, the, in, in the old gold mine, so it's an open cut um, gold mine and they're incredibly deep, I can't quite remember how many hundreds of metres deep this mm. one is, but basically the idea is you have a reservoir at the bottom of the pit full of water and you basically got a reservoir at the top, and so you basically use pumped hydro, so when the prices are really low, or when you're using solar or the solar farm, you use that excess electricity to pump the water at the top of the hill, um, put it in the other um, reservoir, and then you let it fall back down again when you need it, that'll spin the turbine when that happens, and you've got electricity on demand. So um, 
fully dispatchable, which is what's really important uh, as we're moving towards um, towards a fully renewable grid with lots of wind and solar. We don't really want to talk in terms of base load because that just basically means sort of inflexible generation that keeps mm. on running and you can't turn off. You really need to have responsive and dispatchable power. So, you know, when, um, when you are short of wind and solar or when there are peaks in demand, you can switch these things on and they could be batteries and they could be pumped hydro. Look, they could even be electric vehicles. Um, five, ten, fifteen years down the track, and you're going to have all these different, um, and, and there could be gas plants, maybe with you know, renewable hydrogen of the, of the type that um, Andrew Dixon was talking about. So there'd be all these different sorts of technologies, storage, which you can switch on demand, and they'll play an important part or a fundamental part in the um, in a grid that is sort of dominated, if not 100%, run by wind and, wind and solar. Mm. Well, now take us to South Australia. You said that a transmission line. Um, is proposed across from to New South Wales to Wagga from Adelaide or from South Australia, yes. and you said it'll make a difference to at least five pumped hydro projects that are now on the drawing board. And one of them uses, I love the name of this, the old Duchess Iron Mine. You know, so all these old mines are coming back into use. Um, That's right. Look, I, I, I was actually at school when these um, iron ore mines were opened up in the late 1960s and the 1970s, and wonderful night. Names like Iron Knob and Iron Duke and Iron Duchess and things like that. So it was all north of Wyala and Port Augusta and stuff and um, Iron Ore and, and that sort of, you know, the, the first Iron Ore mines um, in Australia. So those bits are no longer used at the moment. So once again, a bit like that gold mine in um, northern Queensland, uh, they're open pits, so they've got a big difference in height. So you fill the bottom with water, you, you've got a pit at the top, and you do the same thing. You basically use um, solar power or wind energy or whatever it is that you have on on hand, and South Australia's got an awful lot of both, or we'll have an awful lot of both. What about these five, basically five projects? You said there's five sort of competing. There Why can't they all projects, be built? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. That's an interesting point. They've got to probably make a business case for themselves. So basically, the first one into the market basically grabs the biggest business case. So uh, it's a bit like sort of trying to manage a transition. If you actually created a 100% renewable energy grid now, what you would do if you started from scratch, you would just build a whole bunch of wind, a whole bunch of solar, and you'd probably build these five pumped hydro plants, maybe the solar thermal plant. The difficulty when you've got existing generators, for instance, all the gas generators, is actually managing that transition. So basically, part of the market is controlled by the gas industry. Now, they need to be replaced. They will be replaced, but they've got to bring in the pumped hydro plants probably one at a time as the business case arises. As just looking at you kind of got to manage one to go out and another one to come in. Mm. So my point was that basically those five pumped hydro plants, they may all well be built, say, 15, 20 years out, but probably only one of them will go in the next few years. Um, and that's the best business case. Look, I'm not too sure which one will which one that will be? There's there's, there's a there's a, a, a seawater one. One that proposes to use seawater at Kaltana. That's by Energy Australia. There's one by Tilt Renewables in the Adelaide foothills. But there's the most interesting one, I think, um, maybe the one in what we, we discussed before in the old iron ore mines. Mm. Mainly because that's going to be proposed by Sanjeev Gupta, the mm. man that's bought the Whaler Steelworks. Wonderful just basically sort of you know revitalising Australia's economy, sort of revitalising our manufacturing base Charles, by using solar power. Could you stand still? I think we're losing you a bit. Could you just stand still? The voice is coming in and out. Just 
are you holding your phone? Oh, okay, sorry about that. That's all right. It's just we can oh, hear you, I but it's sounding still. It's sounding a bit ghostly. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, oh dear, I don't want to sound ghostly. No, you're not ghostly. <laughs> but look, the Australian energy market operator AUMO tells us that the cost of wind and solar energy, combined with pumped hydro and storage and batteries, will be cheaper than any new coal or gas. And yet, I was at the AFR. Energy Summit, and I heard a lot about new gas. Even uh, Dow Chemicals want to pipe gas from Western Australia, and they, it's all in the name of firming up renewables. But I can see the huge dollar signs there and the export signs, and you know, look, it's what, what do you think about that? This gas, do we need gas, or wouldn't pump hydro be enough to firm up? No. Well, yes. I mean, you might get a couple of new gas-fired power stations. What you're going to see is maybe a couple of the existing gas-fired power generators replaced by um, newer gas um, turbines, really these fast-reacting turbines. Because the old gas-style generators, yeah, they came in sort of two or three different forms. So the baseload gas, you're not really going to need much of that going on fire. You know, some of the existing ones, sure, keep them going for five or ten years. You're not going to need new ones. That's just a crazy idea. If you're going to build anything new, it'll be a couple of these um, fast-acting, they're often called aeroderivatives, um, and then just fast-acting backup plans. So you can switch them on in the moment's notice and they can sort of pump away for a half an hour, an hour, however long you need them, and, and then move on. Um, going back to what Aino said, it's really interesting. They're talking about transition in South Australia, and what they're seeing in the future in South Australia, they've, they've got done this integrated system plan, which is a really fascinating document. This is the market operator, the people whose responsibility to, it is to keep the lights on. They've thought about, well, what's going to happen over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and it's basically a 20-year blueprint for action, and they look at South Australia, they think that in South Australia by 2025 we'll be generating the equivalent of 100% of its electricity needs from wind and solar. Um, they recommend this new interconnector going into Wagga Wagga so they can actually sort of trade energy. So at times of surplus, they can export it. At times of deficit, they can import it. But what's really interesting is that they see the role of gas being absolutely minimal. So by 20... I can't remember... Day. By 2030, 2035, the rot, it, it gas only accounts for one terawatt hour, um, which is about five, less than five or ten percent mm. of their total electricity needs. So there'll be some residual gas plants there. So yeah, look, this idea. Look, I mean, look, this idea. Look, it's come from the gas industry. What else do you expect them to say? They sort of oh, say, oh, the golden age of gas. They've been talking oh. about it for five, ten, fifteen years. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Um, well, we did have the gas industry has to. The gas industry has to say that because mm. most of the gas companies have a valuation of all the gas reserves underground that they haven't yet exploited. Mm. And if they actually admit that there's no market for that, then, then the market price of their shares goes crashing down and um, they're unable to borrow money. So, um, you know, they've got, to, they've got to talk the talk yeah. um, all the way right to the end. Yeah. Oh, well, well back to pumped hydro because I'm barracking for pumped hydro because, it's, you know, it's, it doesn't, yeah, ha- doesn't have any emissions. So, look, we knew economy... It depends what you use to pump the water up the hill. If you're using if you're using coal power to pump the water up the hill, then it's not very efficient at all. But if you're using renewables, then it's a damn good idea. Yeah. Okay. Look, Renew Economy has published a series of articles on this, and I would suggest to listeners just look up Renew Economy. There's at least five in a series about re- pumped hydro. If you want to educate yourself, but I found that in Europe, for example, Switzerland has the pumped hydro storage to stabilise the wind power from Germany and the solar power from Spain and Portugal. Can you tell us how this this works? How does it work? 
Well, it's just because it's one big interconnected market, and um, and um, and that's the beauty of having a, a, a um, an interconnected market, and that's why in in, in Denmark um, they've got um, you know, basically the equivalent to 100 percent worse. It's on, over over the years it's more than 50 percent wind, and Spain's getting up there as well, and so is Portugal. So you basically you know, it's the best region. So. Spain or Portugal got a lot of wind. Spain got a lot of wind, but you can build a lot of solar. Denmark and Germany, you got a lot of wind. Um, you've got hydro in Scandinavia. You've got part hydro in Switzerland. Um, you've got a bit of residual nuclear in France and elsewhere. So um, you just make use of all those resources. And so when the um, um, at, at times of, of low prices, once again they pump that water uphill using the excess wind and solar, and then they let it roll back down again when. Um, when um, when the prices rise or the wind and solar are producing less. So do you think the European grid is going towards 100% renewables? Would they be able to achieve that or would they need to still import um, fuels? Uh, they're going to find it a little bit harder than us, mainly because their wind resources and their solar resources are not any big good as Australia. Mm. Um, so there are people who think that you can do that with... Um, with um, in Europe, you're probably going to have a lot more green gas. So you're probably going to have a lot of sort of gas-fired power stations there. But hopefully that'll be that'll be produced with other sort of biofuels or maybe hydrogen fuels and um, and things like that. So you know, with hydrogen produced by excess wind and solar, but the country with really the no-brainer. Uh, opportunity to shift to 100% renewables is, is, is Australia simply because we've got, we've, our wind resources are twice as good um, as they are in many parts of Europe um, and our solar resources of course are quite fantastic but I should mention that there is a fantastic resource in Europe for offshore wind and the costs of that are coming down really quite dramatically and um, and some of their capacity factors which is the amount of you can get out of you know, um, a certain installation is really quite high and that's looking very promising and mm. it has been expensive simply because mm. of the extra engineering and mechanical stuff that needs to go in because it is offshore and you need to anchor those turbines and you need you know, the maintenance because there's nothing so wearing, uh, wearing as, the, um, as the open sea but um, they find a pretty smart ways and interesting ways of reducing those costs so those costs are coming down quite significantly. Mm. Just to finish, what did you think of the that project um, that Andrew Davison was telling us about exporting energy under the sea and where in just in a minute we're going to hear about exporting energy from Tasmania to Victoria. Do you see a future for that globally of exporting from a place where the resource is good to a place where they, they can't build it? Is that going to happen more frequently? Oh, look, I think, I think it will because it just makes sense to, to, to where you can use those wires to move electricity around the place. Um, some places, you know, people still say, well, why would Indonesia um, watch our wind and solar because haven't they got enough wind and solar? Well, they have some, but their solar, you know, also it's, it's a monsoonal country. It's quite, it's quite cloudy there. They're also challenged with land. So if you can produce electricity cheap enough with those fantastic resources in Australia, then why not? Um, I, I guess the, it, it's going to come down, and, and it'd be interesting hearing about the hydro um, proposal because that's pretty exciting as well. But at what point... Does building big interconnectors then start to compete with the possibilities of local generation? <laughs> but um, at some point, we're going to have a gr- these interconnected grid, so more wires, major transmission wires, connecting 
different smaller grids. So you the smaller grids will be more locally rely, you know, rely, they rely on their own generation, yeah. their own wind and solar resources and a certain amount of storage. And then they'll be connected to other parts where we do the same sort of thing so they can share that energy at, at times of need. And I guess that's the principle behind um, Hydro Tasmania. That's the principle behind this new link from South Australia to New South Wales. And that, that's the principle. It's getting the balance right and the costs right. Um, that'll be critically important. Wonderful. It's lovely to talk to you, Giles, and thank you very much for giving us your time. No worries. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Okay, so listeners, please look at Giles uh, Parkinson's uh, newsletter. It's it's an online journal called Renew Economy. If you don't get it yet, it's full of interesting articles. There's one on the Wentworth election today and his thoughts, and he's very frank. And as you hear, he's got uh, got all the information at his fingertips, but it's not dusty knowledge. It's very vibrant. So now we're going to Tasmania, and two people I met at the... uh, uh, summit, the Energy Summit, and it's uh, Steve Davy and Ben White. Thanks. You're listening to 3CR Radio. This is about a project of national importance. Ben White from TAS Networks is with me at the Australian Financial Review Energy Summit. They want to build six, TAS Networks want to build six extra undersea connectors. I've also got Steve Davey with me and he's involved with a pumped hydro project to make Tasmania the battery of the nation. Now, listeners, I know this is very big picture thinking. It hasn't happened yet, but they're well into the planning and looking at it. So I'd like to start with uh, asking Ben about this. You know, Victoria's coal-fired power stations are all on a retirement plan at the moment, and so Victorians are very interested in probably getting more renewable energy. So it's really timely that we have this. I know there's a long lead-up time for you to build it, to bring solar power, hydropower and wind power from Tasmania. How long would it take to build this Marinus project? I'll just quickly qualify. We're, we're really looking at the next interconnector. It's a second interconnector. Okay. There, there's capacity for, as Steve Davey from Hydro Tas said yesterday, what would be an equivalent of six bass links to the current. But we're looking at a 1,200 megawatt second interconnector. So that's sort of the equivalent of um, another two bass links, just to give you some context. Sorry, listeners. You know I'm always for the very biggest projects as quick as possible. But really it is, it would be the, the equivalent of that kind of capacity of six bass links, if you like, oh. to realise the full generating and storage capacity that we have in Tasmania. The lead times for these sorts of projects, they're long, they're, they're very complex, mm. um, the infrastructure, the cable itself gets manufactured and brought over from Europe, and there's a lot of risk, I guess, mm. that you have to mitigate in the design to get it all right. So we're, we're Best case scenario, it's a kind of seven-year time frame to having a 1,200 megawatt link in service. But we already started the time clock, so we're six to 12 months in now. So we could see something of this nature in place at best case in another um, six years, if you like. Well, that's not bad in terms of the retirement plan of the coal-fired power, is it? That's right, and, and in, in many ways, um, made a comment earlier around this idea of insurance value. You've got to you've got to get infrastructure like this in the pipeline. If coal fire power station retirement occurs earlier than you forecast, and we saw with Hazelwood that was very much the case. 
Well, I want to know, is this project needed, bringing more energy from Tasmania, as well as Snowy 2.0, which we've heard a lot about, and uh, the previous Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, was very keen on that, or is it a competition for that? I'll, I'll defer in a moment to Steve Davy, the CEO of Hydro Tasmania. Look, you know, our position, we see there's room for both. There is, I guess, in some ways, there's a, there's a friendly competition at play. And when you do the market modelling, economics around this, if you're ahead of the queue, you've got a better chance to having a stronger business case. So that's our ambition. We want to get away this renewable energy potential from Tasmania and offer that into the national electricity market um, as soon as we can, because we can see enormous benefit. And we, we believe we could deliver that energy and that firming capacity to particularly into Victorian renewable energy uh, projects sooner uh, and, and at a lower cost perhaps than Snowy. But okay. Steve, I've got Steve Davey here. Thanks. Australia's energy market operator has identified that uh, Australia is going to need in the national market about 17,000 megawatts of, of storage by 2040 and that's effectively to replace the, um, the coal-fired generation uh, that reaches the end of its economic life. But as we see much more uh, renewable generation, solar and wind come into the system, uh, that'll make the economics of the existing coal-fired generation more difficult. So we think that um, that Victoria will need the the generation from from Tasmania earlier than that. So uh, our first stage of, of um, battery of the nation, which will be brought on with um, with Project Marinus, the 1200 megawatt or 600 megawatt interconnector, that's only 1200 megawatts of the 17,000 that uh, Australia is going to need. The Snowy 2.0 project's another 2,000 megawatts, so that's a good start on the way to the 17,000 megawatts of, of storage, which will be which will be batteries and pumped hydro and and some other technologies that we don't know about yet. Well, your Battery of the Nation project, I think you presented yesterday at the conference, you said something about 14 pumped hydro uh, storage batteries. Won't this be very disruptive on the landscape? Uh, well, what we've, what we've done over the past year with the support of uh, the Australian Renewable Energy um, Agency is we've narrowed down a funnel of 14 potential projects uh, and we are now doing feasibility, pre-feasibility on those 14 to select the best, the best handful. So the reason that, that uh, pumped hydro projects work so well in Tasmania is we've got an ex- existing hydro system. So the, the, um, any new pumped hydro project in Tasmania would take advantage of the existing hydro system so we wouldn't be uh, damming new rivers, uh, we'd be building power stations close to where there's power stations already and we'd be utilising the transmission corridors that, that already exist. So the disruption of building a new pumped hydro plant would be a lot lower in Tasmania because we're, we're doing it alongside existing hydro infrastructure. Okay. Can Tasmania generate so much extra wind and solar power? I think uh, Ben mentioned that the actual solar resource is quite good in Tasmania, similar to Germany or even better than Germany, though we think of Tasmania as being so cold. But I'm wondering, do you actually have that capacity to, to generate more excess um, renewable energy to provide for the other states? So there are many proponents of, uh, of large wind farms in Tasmania at the moment. Uh, one of them is talking about two areas where they can generate more than a thousand megawatts 
from the wind in Tasmania and the reason that it's so attractive is that the, the wind is stronger and, and more regular in Tasmania so the, the economics of, of wind farms are, are much much better in Tasmania than they are in other parts of Australia and also the wind blows in Tasmania at different times and so the, 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 cor- the, the benefits of the way that Tasmania's wind power mixes in with solar and wind from other parts of the, the country means that, that less firming will be required. Mm. I know listeners will be sick of hearing people like Barnaby Joyce talk about the wind doesn't blow all the time and the sun doesn't shine all the time. It's really simple and we have heard it so much from politicians as if that's something to panic about. But at this conference and at several, like over about the last 12 months I've heard this term firming and so that's been a big theme. How do you get firming of, you know, to bridge over that intermittency? They keep saying gas is the solution. Gas can be piped from Western Australia. We've had people, yes, say mega projects with gas, even shipped from America and all sorts of gas things just in the name of firming. But I don't think, well, I wonder what you think. Is this better than pumped hydro? The reason that the storage works so well, and pumped hydro is just a version of storage, but the reason storage works so well is that with a, with the amount of wind and solar that are coming into the system, there'll be times when there's simply not enough demand for the energy for that wind and solar to, to operate. So the storage takes advantage of that surplus wind and solar that would otherwise be will either otherwise go to waste, effectively not be generated, and use and and stores that so it can be used when when it's needed uh, after the sun's gone down or or uh, or during a during a cold evening. So storage moves moves the power that's not being not being used, mm-hmm. generated by wind and solar, and allows it to be used when when uh, when the wind and solar isn't meeting yeah. all of the demand. Now, really, the the energy is coming into the system for free and is being used used when it's valued. If you provided the same service with gas-fired generation, then you'd still have to go and buy the gas. And gas is gas is very expensive, uh, and uh, it looks like it'll continue to be expensive for some time. So the advantage that a storage system has over a gas-fired system is that the is that the um, is that the energy is going to be available for storage at a much lower price than, than probably the gas is going to be available. But the market should be available for all all sorts of uh, energy sources to, to provide. In. And as long as, if the economics of gas works out to be better than the economics of, of uh, pumped hydro storage, then there'll be more then, then there'll be more gas built. In the long run, as we have more and more renewables and we end up at lower and lower emissions intensity, uh, there'll be more more renewables and more storage, and gas will play a, a smaller and smaller part. Yeah, I'm I'm mainly worried about the climate impact of it, which seems to be a, a thing you can't say in this company. But this, you know, they keep saying it's half the impact of uh, coal but I think it's an impact it's a fossil fuel so what do you think well yeah I think you're right it's and as, as Steve's alluding to it's um, you, you can't really compare the emissions intensity of I mean, pumped hydro and, and gas they offer the same level of service yeah. into the marketplace I know if I had money to invest I'd put it in that pumped hydro it sounds so good and uh, there's plenty of pumped hydro locations around Australia aren't there and we interviewed Andrew Blakers and he found all these resources so I, I didn't hear any say that really firmly at this conference but maybe that's because they're all in business and they still have to make profits but look how does pumped hydro compared to 
large-scale community batteries like that Tesla one in South Australia as a affirming thing? So um, I think there'll be a lot of investment in, bat- in batteries uh, in Australia and around the world. But at the, at the moment, the pumped hydro cost of installation that we're talking about, most of the projects that we're looking at are in the order of one to one and a half million per megawatt installed. And, uh, and we're looking at facilities where there might be 10 or 20 or 30 hours of storage okay. rather, than, rather than an hour or two. Uh, grid, grid batteries, good for offering lots of uh, short-term services. And while the construction cost is probably in that order of 1 million per megawatt installed, that battery will only have about an hour's worth of supply in it. So at the moment, at a very, very large scale, when, when the pumped hydro uh, facility can be built where there's lots of natural advantages and pre-existing infrastructure, uh, you're getting many hours of storage for not much more than, than a battery installation that provides an hour or two of, of storage. Uh, but people are forecasting that that's the storage from batteries will come down dramatically in coming in coming decades. So it may well be that in later in, in a generation or so, the batteries will be so cheap that um, that pumped hydro isn't really an economic solution anymore. Uh, but but the existing the existing pumped hydro will have already paid for itself. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I um, I guess these projects will be positive also for jobs and for revenue in Tasmania. There's obviously there's very big investments, so it has to be worthwhile. But what about the environmental impact? Are you convinced that even under sea and in the forest it's, it's going to be acceptable to the local people? Mm, that's a great question. Certainly part of our analysis that we're doing for further interconnection, it has to consider very deeply the environmental impact. So right now we're looking at the root option analysis. So where where a cable and its connecting infrastructure, the network infrastructure would go, where you can best utilise existing corridors, obviously Bass Strait, you know, it's quite a complex system, so there's a lot of things in there. There's gas pipes, there's telecommunication cables, there's fisheries and scallop beds and, you know, it's migratory um, whales, everything passes through that. But I guess we're, we're fortunate enough, Bass Link as an existing infrastructure has been able to testbed the impact on the environment and uh, and it's still being monitored for its environmental effects and really it's quite minimal. I guess we, we still do, though have to go through that rigorous process. So. Yes. yes, I saw a presentation you gave some time back and with the pictures on the screen all about it and it, it does look like it has been very scientifically planned. Mm-hmm. And uh, Okay, look, the last question is about something the lady just said there from uh, Energy Australia. She said the transition to zero emissions is still in debate and we've had this, this conference, there's been previous conferences. It doesn't seem to be front of mind, zero emissions. The emissions bit doesn't doesn't really seem to be front of mind to me, but then maybe that's just because I come from this background. But it is important for our listeners as well as affordable electricity. So after this conference, what do you see as the way forward? You've listened to all these different presentations. What, what do you see in the big picture? Well, my, my view is that that's um, a non-negotiable. We know, you know, in the, in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's report, they get the warnings get louder and stronger and clearer. 
Um, and I think the energy industry is listening, and it has to. And I think it's unequivocal, really, that the economy is also staying to factor the need to reduce emissions and completely decarbonise. So um, you'll also have heard conversations about electrifying the economy. So if that were the case, all, all parts of society and the economy is driven by electricity. It's the source of electricity that drives that, and that needs to be clean. Yeah, well, people, people are making, um, will need to make some very big decisions in terms of uh, energy infrastructure investment, and uh, most of the companies that are involved in the energy business know that they need to continue to renew their assets, uh, and uh, in the long run, you know, we know we're headed for a for a vastly decarbonised energy industry, uh, and perhaps it is zero emissions by by 2050. And I, I think what we're um, what we're probably concerned about now is. Do we get the signals to make the, the investments over the next five years uh, rather than for the long run? So government signals, policy signals? It's more just understanding uh, whether or not we're making the right decisions right now, uh, given that the, the policy signals are, are, are mixed at times from government. To put it politely, uh, thank you very much. That was Ben White from TAS Networks and Steve Davey from Hydro Tasmania. Thank you very much, both of you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Cyclones uh, is pretty grim. Shocking. Do you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5pm on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. VZE Radio at 5pm on Monday. Turn the tide, literally. Well, that was an interesting program. It was very technical for me, but I hope the listeners that you, you get the feeling that I have that there are some people doing this big thinking, big projects, which will take us away from being a, a pathetic player on the renewable energy stage and becoming an exporter of renewable energy. Um, we hope some of you will be taking climate action right now, but if you have a pencil and paper nearby, here are some coming events. I'll just read out the, um, the things that I think you might enjoy going to. This Wednesday, the 24th of October, at 11am, Melbourne University is uh, hosting um, a session with Richard Dennis from the Australia Institute and Fergus Green from the London School of Economics. They're talking about how we can target coal and accelerate its demise. So 11am, Melbourne University. They're both economists, but they're quite entertaining speakers. Go to the School of Design and then go down to the Malaysian Theatre for 11am. Wednesday the 24th. Tuesday week, the 30th of October at 7pm, will be a big event at the Hawthorne Arts Centre. This is at 360 Burwood Road on the corner of Glen Ferry Road. You can go to Eventbrite and look for this name, Climate Change, Why Should I Care? I think all the speakers have appeared on this show. Dr. Joelle Gurgis, a climate scientist, and she's the author of a marvellous book called Sunburnt Country, History of Our Weather. Um, Oliver Yates, the former head of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, and Sarah Barker from the law firm Minter Ellison on how climate change is causing financial risks and how to beware of that. I think getting informed is a key part in climate action. The informed voters of Wentworth were out in force and there are a few more elections in the pipeline where we can do our best to make climate the clincher. 
And Kurt mentioned the Victorian state election coming up soon. Be informed, be loud, be uh, pushy about getting this agenda of climate action to everybody you know. Um, if you want to send an email to us at radioteam at bze.org.au, I can send you all those details about what's on. And if you would like us to advertise any climate action for you that people can take, please send us a clear message. It might be a campaign you're involved in. We can announce it on the radio. Thank you to our guests tonight, Giles Parkinson, Andrew Dixon, Steve Davey and Ben White. They are all big thinkers and it is a thrill to report on these big projects that are helping us leave the fossils behind. The team tonight was Kurt Johnson on production, Roger Vise on podcasts and Vivian Langford with the interviews. And thank you to my team today. We've all worked together and I hope you can get this podcast to anyone who's interested. Thanks also to Alex Smith of Radio EcoShock in Canada. He rebroadcast our piece on Newcastle that we played last week in the Save Up at Parkside and the people who, uh, about the people who stopped the coal trains and Alex liked that and he replayed it in Canada and that story has now reached over 90 stations in Canada and the USA so you can hear his show at Radio 3CR, it's called Radio EcoShock every Sunday morning at 6am and so thank you for listening everybody, stay tuned after the music um, to Save Albert Park's time slot, they're not back yet but they will be soon and we'll play a special program produced by Croft about the Keshania Cooking Collective, these are people who feed refugees arriving in France. So good night everybody and tune in next Monday for the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions